Welcome to the Students and Scholars Lecture Podcast that accompanies the course English 2620, British Literature After 1800 at Utah Valley University. In our first episode, we're going to be discussing the novel as a new and emerging media, particularly as it's explored in Jane Austen's novel Northanger Abbey. We will also be discussing things such as precursors to Austen's novels, celebrating female novelists and readers, and cautions about falling too deep into fiction. And joining us in our conversation is our first guest scholar, Dr. Emily Grover. She earned her PhD from Texas Tech and did her doctoral work on female novelists in the 18th centuries. She currently works at Park University and the University of Missouri, Kansas City. She also just recently co-authored a publication in 18th century fiction called Mediation is the Message, Charles Johnston's Chrysal. Thank you for being here, Emily. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm excited to be here. So, so this, this most recent publication of yours, talk to me a little bit about kind of the core of this it narrative that you were discussing. Yeah, so um, Johnstone's Crystal was about a guinea, a gold coin uh, that mm-hmm. could talk. And so it's an interesting novel. Um, it, it's treated kind of like pulp fiction. It was written on uh, Rub Street, which was typically known for uh, making producing so many books and they weren't uh, super classy books. Like for example, mm. uh, in Chrysal, uh, at the end of the story, the guinea is about to tell us what is the secret of life. Oh. Uh, but then the person who is writing down Chrysal's narrative, the man lets out this huge fart and <laughs> spooks Chrysal's soul from out of the gold coin and then oh from then's force. So it's just a gold coin. So it's not like a, a classy novel. Uh, but, uh, but it is really interesting, especially in terms of, and it was a popular novel, you know, I mean, people, uh-huh. people got a kick out of that, but it's really interesting to study because of how much the, the narrative itself talks about novels. We only get Crystal's story through Crystal's owner, you know, who, who, who writes the story down, mm-hmm. but then he dies and the story gets dispersed and now it's being used to wrap fish. So this editor comes along and collects the pieces and puts them together. So there's all these hands at play, uh, getting us Crystal's story to the reader. And so there's an unreliability about that. There's a, sure. an, an ambiguity about that. So it's kind of a fun novel to look at, you know, this I, in the 18th century, it narratives where a waistcoat or a sofa or something could, could suddenly start mm-hmm. talking to you and, and be mm-hmm. a character. Well, that's fascinating. I love that. Um, and I think, and I think that looking at that it narrative, you know, obviously this course that we're in is, is writing after the 1800, after 1800, sure. but you can't ignore all of this grappling with what it means to make a narrative and make a novel, this right. new novel thing, um, without looking backward at the 18th century. Cause that's really when the novel starts to like coalesce, right? right. Yeah, it is. It is. I love Northanger Abbey because it is that it's this you know, we need to stop writing novels where the heroines read novels, but they're ashamed of reading novels. Like, yeah. what, you know, but then at the same time, she, she satirizes so much 
about mm -hmm. novels that I, I love how complicated that is that I can't even mm -hmm. square what the narrative thinks. I, I, I feel like the narrative, I feel like the narrator of Northanger Abbey is all about novels, but also all about, I don't know, responsible reading. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Which is, which is in itself kind of a really interesting thing. So, so yeah, let's talk about that kind of opening kind of chapters to Northanger Abbey yeah. where we get um, Catherine Moreland, where even the very opening of the novel is like, well, she's destined to be a heroine. And since the adventure isn't coming to her, she will go and find that adventure. <laughs> so like, it's, it's like immediately playing with this idea of like, okay, how, how can I create a novel if I can't get my, my protagonist where she needs to be? This, it's very meta. Yeah. Kind of right out of the gate. Absolutely. Um, so what are some of like the moments in Northanger Abbey that, that particularly kind of take that nod towards novel writing and particularly women and novel reading and writing Yeah, that you think are most important for us to kind of like pay attention to? Yeah, I, I love those beginning chapters. I love when Catherine realizes that to be a heroine, she needs to, you know, she needs to know Pope. She needs to know Thompson. Uh, so she's yes. memorized these quotes, but they're, they're ludicrous quotes. You know? <laughs> <laughs> she can't contextualize them. Uh, yes. So, so there's a lot of fun things there. Um, one of the spots that I had marked to bring up today is in mm -hmm. volume one, chapter five. And there's this part in the, and I love that these, I love that these asides will happen just in the middle, you know, of this longer paragraph. Um, yes. And, uh, and, and she, she sort of wakes us up a little bit with this, alas, if the heroine of one novel be not patronized by the heroine of another, from whom can she expect protection and regard? Let us not mm. desert one another. We are an injured body. Although our productions have afforded more extensive and unaffected pleasure than those of any other literary corporation in the world, no species of composition has been so much decried. From pride, ignorance, or fashion, our foes are almost as many as our readers. There seems almost a general wish of decrying the capacity and undervaluing the labor of the novelist, and of slighting the performances which have only genius, wit, and taste to recommend them, I am no novel reader. I seldom look into novels. Do not imagine that I often read novels. It is really very well for a novel, such as the common cant. And what are you reading, miss? Oh, it is only a novel, replies the young lady, while she lays down her book with affected indifference or momentary shame. It is only a Cecilia, or a Camilla, or a Belinda, or in short, only some work in which the greatest powers of the mind are displayed, in which the most thorough knowledge of human nature, the happiest delineation of its varieties, the liveliest effusions of wit and humor are conveyed to the world in the best chosen language. Um, Cecilia and Camilla there are two uh, Francis Burney titles and uh, I believe mm -hmm. Belinda's Edgeworth, isn't it? Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, uh, and yet, and yet Northanger Abbey, uh, teases so much, um, these, these tropes that we see in novels. Um, mm -hmm. so, so there is, there is some, some fun complexities there, but yeah, you know, um, it, but it is interesting, uh, bringing up Frances Burney because she, she is publishing earlier and there've been successful women writers before Burney, obviously. Sure. Um, mm -hmm. 
But uh, Bernie came from a family. Her dad was a music historian, Charles Charles Bernie, and he was friends. He hobnobbed with uh, the London literary elite. He was really good friends with Samuel Johnson, uh, who was a, a very important essayist, came up with the first English dictionary. Uh, so she was born in this really proper family. Um, and I think they sort of didn't mm -hmm. expect her um, to become very well read uh, or to start writing. Uh, but as, but it turns mm -hmm. out that she she did have a, a talent for this. So she began to um, write down stories, keep a journal. Um, when she was 14 or 15, I think, she realized uh, that she was writing so much that perhaps this was going to keep her from being a, a proper lady. So she burned, she had a bonfire and burned all of her, oh, all of her writings. But then she realized that she she wanted to write. So, you know, within the next year, she had already begun her next novel, she publishes her first novel, Evelina, which is hilarious and fantastic. And, yes. and, and you see, uh, <laughs> you see Austin uh, referencing this here. And in fact, Austin's um, Pride and Prejudice uh, is a phrase lifted from one of uh, Bernie's novels. Um, so there's, I did not. Yeah, that. it's kind of fun. So there's kind of this adoration there. But uh, there is this kind of interesting thing that, I, you know, Austin is is referencing here where even even uh, an author like uh, like Bernie, who, you know, the Northanger Abbey narrator claims is this, I've already closed my book, but this amazing genius of wit and talent right. and things that right. even Bernie herself thought, I can't, uh, I'm not going to get married, you know, if people know that I published it's a little, novel yeah. and it's violent yeah. and she's got you know she's got some uh unsavory characters and so for people to look at her mm -hmm. and say do you this was in your brain you know but yeah and so a novel is an interesting thing in that it's this new art form that people are starting to uh see as uh as as a, a, a literary genre of great value um and the next big mm -hmm. thing and yet there's also this kind of apologetic nature for for authors of novels yeah. especially female authors of novels well and I, th and I think that that really hits too at, at some of the core things that we're seeing in in Northanger Abbey too not just that that Catherine um is at first a little bit hesitant to share with people that she likes novels and of course she particularly loves the gothic mm -hmm. novel um but also there's this like the whole like circulating library thing um, it feels like it's something that um, obviously the circulating libraries is a relatively new phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And it feels like so much of that is fueled on women trying to get novels on the sly. It feels like, like women are largely responsible for the success of circulating libraries, Absolutely, female novelists, as well as female um, patrons. But it always feels like it's always this like hush, hush thing. Like you don't, you don't want to be seen coming in and out of the circulating library with your books. You're exactly right. That it's this, you suddenly have access to books. And I think Catherine, you know, her, her home life, uh, they were, had low enough economic uh, circumstances that I, I want, in fact, I'm, I'm trying to remember now if Catherine ever, you know, reveals that she, she uses circulating libraries. Um, Cause I'm sure she did, you know, uh, because books are mm -hmm. expensive. Binding books uh, yeah. was expensive. Yeah. And so, um, but, but even if you had money, a lot of the time, the library was owned by the father of the family, 
and you you couldn't have mm-hmm. access. Um, there's a, there's an author I like from uh, the early 19th century, Mary Lamb. She has an interesting she well you know I won't get it. Well I'll get I'll give just enough so that students are interested to go read the Wikipedia page. But Mary <laughs> Mary Lamb she has a story called The Young Mohammedan where it's about a, a girl like eight or nine years old and she knows she's not supposed to read the books in her dad's library, but she sneaks in and she starts to read and she finds a book about Abraham from the Old Testament, her hero from the Old Testament. She's mm-hmm. so interested. And it turns out it was a text about Islam uh, and she reads uh, and becomes converted uh, to Muhammad and realizes that her family is going to be destroyed if they don't also convert to Islam. There's a lot of problems about this uh, story and the, you know, the the ethnocentrism of this kind of Christian uh, perspective that Mary's writing from. But the interesting thing is that uh, she becomes very ill because she can't tell her family that she's snuck into her dad's library. She can't save mm. their souls if she doesn't share with them this message. So she becomes very mm. ill, close to death. And the doctor comes in and he, he speaks with her and he says, dear, have you been reading anything that you shouldn't have? And she reveals okay. like, yes, I've been in my father's library. And he said, well, my first uh, you know, the first thing that we're going to do to help you get better is you're going to stop reading. You're only going to read things that your father has approved for you. Oh and we're goodness. also going to get you some needlework. We're going to get you, you know, basket making, things like that. And then she became much better. And the moral of the story is, you know, if your dad says, don't read this book, you don't read that book, you know. But then you get oh these circulating goodness. libraries where suddenly you can go in and pick something out and borrow it. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, so there's something really kind of fun about that. And yet, and yet Northanger Abbey is all about the dangers of reading novels uh, irresponsibly, I think, you know. Yeah, which is such a, it's such a double message on Austin's part, isn't it? This idea of like, I won't denigrate female novelists because they're amazing. And then she's like, but be careful about how you read Mysteries of Udolpho because you might you know, get reality and fiction warped because, you know, obviously the female brain needs to be caught. That's right. That's that. right. And I like, I like how the different cast of characters uh, that, that Isabella also reads, uh, you know, Radcliffe and, sure. and the, the Tilneys and they all kind of read them different ways mm-hmm. where the Tilneys, I think are this, uh, you know, the best example, like this is, this is your, this is yes. how you should read. But Isabella, I think it's so interesting that Isabella fakes reading them like Catherine, but, but we know, you know, that she's mm-hmm. not really, Isabella can tell the difference <laughs> between fact and fiction, but she likes to pretend yes. because there's, there's something, you know, uh, what is, what is the line that, uh, that Austin's narrator says later about how uh, basically men love a good ditz. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I think I actually have that. It's like a woman, especially if she has the misfortune of knowing anything, could should conceal right. it as That's well right. as she can. It, you know, and there's a couple other riffs and variations of that phrase within Northanger Abbey, but the idea that like, yeah, don't don't let Tilney know that you can actually <laughs> That's think right. of things. And there's and there's actually you know by the end of the novel, there's even this kind of idea that like he finds her naivete like just utterly charming and that's kind of why he goes for her and it's like oh it is I've had in fact students when I've when I've read Northanger Abbey with students and I don't know if if there's listeners thinking the same way they haven't loved it because it's harder to get behind this 
you know, true love relationship. Uh, it's different from Elizabeth and Darcy, although if, if you're going to ask me about yeah. that one, I'm going to yeah. say that that one's problematic too. Uh, but yeah, if you're reading to get drawn into a, a romance, you know, I think that Northanger Abbey is is playing with your intentions and playing with your assumptions and making you, yeah. you know, kind of question like, <laughs> Tilney's yeah. relationship with with uh, Catherine. Well, I mean, in that said, I should I should also clarify that I think I think Tilney <laughs> is hilarious. I think he's one he's one of my favorite Austin heroes just because like he seems like someone you could have a really right. good conversation with. Whereas, you know, I don't, I don't know that Darcy is going to be the guy that I go to have a good conversation <laughs> with. Be a little more one-sided, maybe. Probably. And then he might look at me like, I don't yeah. know what I'm talking I feel like there'd be a lot just, more. Yeah. I feel like there would be a lot more minefields with Darcy where if I say the wrong thing, he's going to judge me. Yeah. But if I say the wrong thing in front of Tilney, he's just going to educate me you know, and enjoy it. He's going to laugh, but then, you know, yeah. also correct me and then if i if i take his correction he will find that's me right. even that's more right. attractive um you know important ways to have conversations with austin heroes that's basically <laughs> what i'm here for <laughs> but yeah the idea that, that catherine gets so swept up into these novels and again you know this this new genre um but also the idea that you know there's so much of novelty happening to her throughout the whole novel you know she goes she goes to bath for the first time and it's just like she feels like she has gone to a fairyland you know she is so in love with bath i think there's that that line i shall be forever talking of bath it allows her to create a fiction and i think any of us who have traveled um or who have gone to a place especially one that's wrapped up in, in stories that i mean i think that you know the first time you, you go to England or, or someplace that you've read about, you, you sort of expect a story to happen to you. You expect something exciting and interesting yeah. and novel, you know, to happen to you. And so um, it happens mm-hmm. at Bath. Mm-hmm. It happens when she heads to the castle um, where it's, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm putting myself in this place where now, now my real story can begin. Um and yeah, I, one yes. of the things that I wanted to talk about was uh, a book. And I don't know if Austin read Charlotte Lennox's The Female Quixit. It looks like it should be called The Female Quixote because that's what it is. It's based off Don Quixote, who also reads romance novels and then can't tell the difference between real life and fiction. Um, but uh, uh-huh. but the, the early Brits that read that book... They didn't pronounce they didn't, it right. They didn't pronounce it right. So technically, you're supposed to call it the female quicksit, which is just such a silly, a silly thing to, it's you fun. know, to be specific about. Yeah. Um, but it's also about mm-hmm. uh, a, a character. Her name is Arabella. And uh, she's really intelligent, mm-hmm. uh, but she's not very educated in a formal way. And so um, uh, I just want to read just a little bit. Um, it says uh, her ideas from her manner of life and the objects around her had taken a romantic turn and supposing romances were real pictures of life. From them, she drew all her notions and expectations. It's really, it's a, it's a <laughs> hilarious book um, where she finds herself, she kind of grows up in a certain situation, but then she ends up going to like an uncle's house or a relative's house. Um, and it's a step up socially. 
And she sees this as an opportunity to become one of these heroines that she's read about. So she ends up with this servant, Lucy, and she starts to give Lucy some instructions. She says, you know, after I die, you need to be prepared to tell my history. And Lucy says, you want me to do what? (laughs) And she says, you need to be prepared. She says, you, you know, you need to soften the parts of my history where you have the greatest room to flatter and conceal, if possible, some of those disorders my beauty has occasioned. You need to be able to recount all my words and actions, even the smallest and most inconsiderable, but all my, but also all my thoughts, however instantaneous, and relate exactly every change of my countenance, the number of all my smiles, half smiles, <laughs> blushes, turnings pale, glances, pauses, full stops, interruptions, the rise and falling of my voice, every motion of my eyes, every gesture which I have used for these 10 years past, nor omit the smallest (laughs) circumstance that relates to me. And then Lucy just responds, Lord bless me, you know, because she's a crazy person here. Um, (laughs) But yeah, and so we, so we have these characters and this, but you know, I, I feel like it's, I remember and, and it's been a while. It's been a while since the Twilight books were first published. So I don't think we do. And, and maybe the, the students listening to this have not encountered this. But I remember when Twilight was first published, there was this big concern that um, that young, you know, young women were um, having these damaged expectations of what a man, you know, a, a love interest should be like. And there was this real, like, this is going to cause them mm-hmm. issues someday in the, in the, in the way that they're reading this book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of rolled my eyes at that because, you know, I don't think we need to be quite so worried about women not being able to read and understand books and, and tell the difference between fact versus fiction. But, and yet I could also admit that there is something fashionable uh, about a woman who is so drawn into books that they think that the things that they read could come to pass, that maybe I will meet a vampire, you know? Mm-hmm. I think I think, I think that's true. I think that also that the fact that there is this kind of blurring of reality is something that, you know, it's it's a very, very charming thing to see. And it's like, oh, sure, that would never happen. And yet, I mean, not to take this in a really like super downer direction, mm. we are having conversations contemporarily about your your media consumption. You know, are you understanding what's fact, what's fiction? Yes. Are you being a discerning re- reader? The fact that that has apparently always been a concern about like, when you read these things, can you actually concretely identify like, this is fact, this is, this is fiction. Like this becomes like a legitimate concern over the next, yeah. you know, two hundred years. Yeah. I, I love that. Uh, I love that connection to, you know, hashtag fake news and what is real and what is fabrication. Cause it is, you know, this, this, our relationship with mm-hmm. the written word is so fraught with, well, who did write it? And going back to Crystal, you know, th- there's an mm-hmm. unreliability mm-hmm. often in, in the narrators of, of novels. You know, another thing yeah. that I love about Northanger Abbey is that it goes to that gothic fiction, because I think that that is more so than romances, yes. I think, to give a story that much power. And so mm-hmm. I think, you know, I think with scary stories, there mm-hmm. is this sense of, I don't want to put those ideas into my head because <laughs> that might make them come true or something or, yeah. or make it more real. You know, I think maybe, maybe uh-huh. we've all had that experience where we've watched a scary movie and then we've gone to bed and it's hard to 
extrapolate that fact versus the fiction you know that ghosts aren't real and yet you you are not going to mm-hmm. go get a drink of water without turning on all the lights you know well and, and you know full full confession the first time <laughs> i read bram stoker's dracula there's that scene where you know spoiler alert um dracula yeah. starts climbing face down <laughs> his castle wall and just something about the vividness of that image. That is, I think, literally the only time that I, a novel has given me a nightmare. Um, something about that very, like, and it's a very short little sentence or something, but it was just so vivid for me. It's so good. Like, it's so good. Um, so, so, maybe, so maybe I am more like Captain Moreland than I, than I would like to well, have initially thought. Speaking of that, I don't know. And I, um, I don't want to, you know, keep talking if, if we've gone too long. But I do have... Uh, a passage from Mysteries of Rodolfo. Uh, if okay, so, and the thing about Radcliffe to kind of keep in mind is that she kind of uh, tells Scooby Doo narratives where there's a lot of supernatural elements, but then at the <laughs> end of the book, all the masks get taken off, and you realize that there was nothing supernatural to begin with. So there's something kind of interesting right. about that. And and another thing to keep in mind about Radcliffe is that she. She is sort of famous for designating a difference between horror and terror. And she was into terror, which she said mm. heightened your sensations so that you could better sympathize and, and mm-hmm. empathize with these characters and have your feelings magnified. Um, and that horror desensitizes mm-hmm. you and shuts down your sensitivities, makes you numb to things, which she was not down with. Uh, and I, you know, I don't know if Catherine, okay. I mean, certainly her emotions seem to be heightened. Uh, but yeah, so, so there was a moral element mm-hmm. to it, which I think is kind of interesting about Radcliffe. Okay, so mm-hmm. uh, Emily has decided yeah. to check out this veiled chamber. She is unveiling the chamber. When her, when her spirits had overcome the first shock of her situation, she held up the lamp to examine if the chamber afforded a possibility of escape. It was a spacious room whose walls, wainscoted with rough oak, showed no casement or window but the grated one, which Emily had left, and no other door than that by which she had entered. The feeble rays of the lamp, however, did not allow her to see at once its full extent. She perceived no furniture except, indeed, an iron chair fastened in the center of the chamber, immediately over which, depending on a chain from the ceiling, hung an iron ring. Having gazed upon these for some time with wonder and horror, she next observed iron bars below, made for the purpose of confining the feet, and on the arms of the chair were rings of the same metal. As she continued to survey them, she concluded that they were instruments of torture, and it struck her that some poor wretch had once been fastened in this chair and had there been starved to death. She was chilled by the thought, but what was her agony when in the next moment it occurred to her that her aunt might have been one of these victims and that she herself might be next. An acute pain seized her head. She was scarcely able to hold the lamp and looking round for support was seating herself unconsciously in the iron chair itself. (laughs) That's delightful. (laughs) My my pleasure. I love I love that her reaction to seeing this torture chair 
is to fall into it and then realize, you know, <laughs> but she, she makes you stay in this ambiguity. <laughs> and I think that not, you know, going back to this idea of novels, uh, we're coming out of the 18th century where form poetry was king, as were allegories, parables, you know, stories had messages. And Samuel Johnson said, you know, you need to teach a lesson. Your bad guys mm -hmm. need to be clearly bad. Your good guys need to be clearly good so that we you, you teach a lesson. But novels are ambiguous and you don't know where mm -hmm. they're going to go. And you don't know, mm -hmm. you know, and, and as I think, I think novels really were the vehicle for introducing complicated characters, which is what Austin is known for, where you have as many people that are team Tilney as people mm -hmm. who are, no, Tilney is grooming Catherine and this is gross. And see the same thing with Pride and Prejudice even today, where there are people who mm -hmm. love Darcy and people who love Bingley because he's clearly the more good, you know, the, the clearly good guy. And so... Yeah, mm -hmm. I think I think novels, mm -hmm. they're great for telling yeah. a scary story, but they're also great for just telling a complicated, nuanced story where good and evil are not so clear. The lesson isn't so clear. I think you're right, Emily, that the, the complexity of the characters, the complexity of the novel in general is something that is what draws Catherine into the stories initially. And it's also what kind of pulls her out, the fact that you can't have these simplistic plot lines in your life. And she has to confront that by the end. So... Absolutely. The novel's complexity is kind of the core of what's happening in Northanger Abbey. Thank you again to Dr. Emily Grover for being a guest on our Students and Scholars podcast. We look forward to discussing this in class, as well as looking forward to next week's podcast in which we discuss surveillance and mapping within Northanger Abbey. Thank you.